and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that promises to wear that periwinkle tie that you knitted for it. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane-Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the... Do, do, you, do you hear that voice of the MCU? So listen up, a-holes. We're going to talk about Agent Carter Season 2, Episodes 8 to 10. Lonnie, we are doing something a little different this episode. It's very exciting. Oh, great. Yay, I love it. So we have found ourselves here at the end of Agent Carter's second season, and as often happens at the end of seasons, <laughs> they're not introducing much new stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case of this show, they have kept their eyes on the finish line so tightly that they didn't even give me like any throwaway lines to work with for Four Color Facts. Wow. Yeah. So without facts to dive into, I am introducing a brand new segment takes to astonish <laughs> i love it now i've been toying with the idea of doing a question and answer show either as a podcast or as a stream and that's the title that i've had for it in mind you know it's mm -hmm. riffing off that old marvel title tales to astonish we've talked about mm -hmm. before and since chipperish and pulp diction have the best patrons in the known universe i went to them for questions about the mcu the 616, or just a deeper insight into some opinion that I've thrown out here along the way as we've done all these shows. <laughs> so, friends, please join us for the first installment of Takes to Astonish. So, Jim, one of our patrons, says, tell us more about guns as earned and unearned power in the 616 or superhero comics in general. I haven't watched Agent Carter in a while, but there could be a link there considering guns are used in the show. And I agree. There are a lot of guns in Agent Carter. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that is there aren't any superheroes in it. Right. Right. So that's legit. <laughs> but I want to start mm -hmm. with Lonnie, you setting the table for this a little bit, because the phrase unearned power, that guns are unearned power, is actually one of your thoughts I think generally coming from the Buffy and Angel universe, right? Yes, generally within the Buffy and Angel universe. Now, guns being unearned power across the board, I think, is a less sturdy discussion or yeah, less sturdy yes. take to have. I agree. Um, within the Buffy and Angel universe where power is earned or has consequence, right? Um, the power is supernatural. You know, that is the nature of the kind of power that we see. We've got vampires, we've got slayers, we've got demons. They all have superhuman strength um, and they have various different kinds of powers that come along with that strength. So in that particular kind of universe, um, a gun is a is an unearned. You just pick it up. Right. You don't earn that power. You don't earn that power with your um, with your dedication to either good or evil. You don't earn that power with your struggle with it. Um, guns are just picked up and used randomly. And usually within the Buffy and Angel universe, this is a conscious decision that when they use guns, you will often hear a line like, you know what? These things never useful. That kind of thing. Right. Um, so they have a take on guns because guns do this um, 
do this kind of thing to the power differential that that brings anybody up to a power level that can actually be up to where the supernatural powers are. Like, because somebody with supernatural powers, a vampire can get shot and, and go on to tell the tale. But, you know, a slayer can't. A slayer gets shot. Um, she's down. That's it. She's done. Right. Um, because she is essentially human, even though she has all that extra power, all that extra strength. So what a gun does is it brings anyone who can pick up a gun kind of up to the level of a Buffy or at least somewhere where they can fight off a Buffy, you know, mm-hmm. and that her supernatural power kind of ceases to have, you know, the, the pack the wallop that it ordinarily would. So guns kind of ruin the power differential within that particular world and the way that the power works is on this metaphorical level because it is in a, a fantasy universe, right? So the meaning of the power is huge and guns in that context have no meaning. They are they are power without meaning. They are unearned power. So in that circumstance, in that kind of story, guns end up just kind of screwing with everything. They don't belong there. They feel wrong. And my assertion is that that is the reason why. Now, in Agent Carter, I would say, and I'm going to let you take this, but my guess is, because I think you're the expert on how guns fit into this universe. But for me, when I see the guns, that is earned power. We have no supernatural. I mean, we have Whitney Frost, right? You know, but guns don't touch her, right? You know, I mean, she gets shot, you know, dead in the chest in these set episodes, and she's fine. So guns can't take her down. Um, Guns are actually earned power in the hands of the skilled people who use them, you know, um, all of your SSR agents, you know, all of Manfredi's guys, right? Uh, These are people who use guns. They know how to use them. Um, They may not always use them for for good, depending on who is holding the gun. Um, But it it doesn't break the the meaning of power within the universe um, the way that it would in like a Buffy or an angel or something like that. Um, So that is my best guess. But I really want to hear your take take on how guns work within the 616 and the superhero universe. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to talk about that first and at the very mm-hmm. end I'm going to circle back around to Agent Carter and also the movie that brought this question which is Guardians of the Galaxy because they mm-hmm. mix with superhero stuff in really interesting yeah. ways that that bend the rules that I'm going to talk about but do not break them in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So First thing we have to say about superheroes in general is that superheroes began as, and would be better off if they'd stayed as, stories for children, (laughs) and children shouldn't play with guns, Mm -hmm. or even have access to guns. And perhaps my own personal politics are going to show here a bit, but I'm going to try and keep it mainly about superheroes. Yeah. At the oldest, superheroes should aim at young adult. That Uh is the oldest that they should go, in my opinion. That's really what Marvel made its name doing in comics. That's why Mm -hmm. we have a Marvel comics. And I think that's largely what the MCU has kept to. Mm -hmm. I mean, lots of PG-13 ratings and no more. And that's not just in terms of violence, but it's in terms of a lot of subject matter. Right. Civil war is a question about authority of government that we frame as a fight between superheroes. That's Mm -hmm. about the right speed for, you know, 12, 13, 14 year olds in civics class. I'm here Mm -hmm. for that, right? So so that's the first thing. These are childish concepts and guns as an actual useful tool have no place in childish concepts as far as I'm concerned. So that's the first thing. 
Secondly, as a genre, the entire idea of superheroes, frankly, make guns obsolete. Mm -hmm. Let's look at our two original examples, and then you can see how this rolls out from there. Right. Superman was literally created to, among other things, have bullets bounce off of his chest because right. one of the creators lost their father to gun violence. Oh, God. Yeah, that's part of the character. Who, mm -hmm. When I was powerless, when my father was powerless, when he was taken from me by a gun, let me imagine the kind of person who would have the power and the inclination to come and keep that from happening, Superman. Oh, wow. I mean, it's fundamental to him that uh, that bullets bounce off of him. And mm -hmm. to look at uh, that in terms of future generations, uh, Grant Morrison, one of my favorite comic book creators, has mm -hmm. talked about how Superman caught his attention because his parents were banned the bomb activists yeah. when he was a mm -hmm. child. And Superman is a character who cannot be hurt by atomic bombs. Uh -huh. So he right away understood that there's an idea that's bigger than the bullet or bigger mm -hmm. than the gun. And that's superheroes jobs. And it's. Yeah. Right there embodied in Superman. Our second obvious example, also from the same era and the same company, Bruce Wayne had to recreate himself into a man who is better than a gun, but does not use a gun mm -hmm. because he lost his parents to gun violence. Right. So from 1939, guns are chump change in a superhero universe, despite how deadly they are in the real world. And that power differential is as it should be. Like that mm -hmm. is how the genre should work, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, 99% of the time. <laughs> I mean, a little deconstruction and a little subversion is always a good thing, but if, when you start to subvert it constantly, mm -hmm. that's bad and that's yeah. kind of what happens as we look at the 80s and 90s, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The 80s saw a rise in gun-toting vigilantism in mm -hmm. the real world. Yes. And it was reflected in pop culture. I think most notably with the Death Wish films that starred uh -huh. Charles Bronson yeah. and were loosely based on real events. You also start to see anti-heroes, or as I call them, villains, showing up <laughs> in superhero comics as well. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And I think the most famous example of this is probably The Punisher. The Punisher is a serial killer who preys on mobsters because they killed his family. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. that's a dude who murders other people yeah. with a bunch of guns and explosives mm -hmm. and whatnot. And since I think superheroes are best when they're inspirational and aspirational, I don't love that development. I don't mm -hmm. like it at all. And it leads us directly into the many excesses of the 90s where giant guns and also a bunch of pouches, but I cannot explain that one, but giant guns. <laughs> a bunch of pouches? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Everybody who's listening to this that read comics in the 90s just nodded along with me and then were like, oh yeah, Lonnie hasn't read comics. I know, what is pouches? Pouches full of what, like fanny packs? Like what? <laughs> Explain this to Superhero me, Superhero costume design took a very <laughs> militaristic bend, and uh -huh. part of that was because we were introducing characters that carried around ridiculously oversized guns, like uh -huh. cartoonishly big guns, mm -hmm. and because nothing says military like a bunch of pouches full of who knows what, I guess, <laughs> and also big shoulder pads a lot of the time? I don't know. <laughs> but that's what okay. happened. Okay, all right. <laughs> and at that point, ginormous guns are ubiquitous and start to be considered acceptable superhero tools. Mm -hmm. 
I don't love it. You know, right. I don't. Now, moving into 2019, where gun violence in the U.S. is at an all-time high and our Second Amendment has been twisted out of shape to allow randos to have arsenals. Mm -hmm. And I think that more than ever, in fact, possibly more than ever and more similarly than since the 1930s and 40s, mm -hmm. aspirational characters created for children who are also gun nuts that murder people are bad ideas. Right. Okay. So when you combine that with the visibility of the MCU, I think the idea has the potential of being actually dangerous. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's why I'm glad that the Punisher was relegated to the Netflix series where where I'm also told he's a lot more nuanced than most of the takes we get in the comic books. We'll, okay. we'll see when we get there. But <laughs> right. regardless, I'm glad that he's kind of a cul-de-sac, like that uh -huh. he's not showing up standing next to Captain America so Cap can high five him and be like, good job shooting a bunch of dudes, Frank. Right. Not into it. <laughs> so, so there is that. Like there's, I feel, a legitimate real world reason. But at a genre level, bringing guns to a superpower fight makes you a chump. Right. If all you've got that lets you sit at the superhero table is the ability to pull the trigger, you aren't super at all. Once again, unearned power. And this is interesting because, uh, like, you know, I've always said that our stories reflect our culture back at us. They reflect us back mm -hmm. at us. And as we see this increase in these gun stories, you know, good guy, like, or man who's presented, or usually it's a guy, usually it's a man, uh, presented as, as quote unquote good or the hero of the story, right? toting guns and just shooting dudes, you know, as being like an aspirational thing. I think that is a real question that we do need to ask ourselves, um, like why that is what we're seeing, why this is what we're going to, um, why this this idea, I think essentially what it comes down to within our culture is a sense of powerlessness within ourselves, that we don't have power over our own lives. And in a lot of ways, um, I think that's very true. <laughs> like a lot of things happen to us that we can't really do anything about. And that is a much, much, much bigger discussion, you know, for <laughs> a for a podcast with smarter people than me. Right. Um, but it is a really interesting question, especially as you look through, you know, the time frame in which these stories start to pop up. You know, the 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 superhero that can can't be touched by guns and then the, you know, disaffected antihero. Right. Who is using guns. And essentially they do speak. I mean, specifically within the Buffy universe, I would say that. And, and you're going to talk about Agent Carter here in just a second. But I would say like in Agent Carter specifically, that is a small mini universe within the superhero universe in which the guns are not unearned, you know. Um, but yeah, but in in this like greater, wider, super powered space, um, guns, I think, are not part of of those stories um, and, and they don't have a good place in those stories. Um, they're they're very complicated discussion to have but uh but as far as the stories go i think that i think that it is interesting to see what that those stories exist that those stories are happening in this space what that says to us about us that's a better way to put it because i think guns are actually in a way very important to the superhero genre because they set mm -hmm. that bare minimum bar like if you can't right. handle a guy with a gun take the outfit off yes mm-hmm and one of my favorite things about superheroes as a genre is that they can borrow or meld with basically any other genre. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's what you're getting with Agent Carter. It's a spy fi mm-hmm. show with right. the potential of superhero level stakes, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from that perspective, they are government agents. They are authority figures who have been allowed to mm-hmm. have a gun. But in the end, the gun is not enough. You know, they right. don't beat Whitney with a gun. And in fact, you make mm-hmm. the point, like Jarvis fails utterly to stop Whitney with a gun. Like right yeah. there, we're off the charts. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're into super person land right. where a gun is okay, but it's not really gonna close the job, you know? Mm-hmm. This is a similar thing with Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy is a superhero space opera. Yes. Space operas have laser guns. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they had them before Star Wars. Like, ray guns were a huge child's toy available when you just had, like, Flash Gordon comic strips and radio shows, let alone mm-hmm. once you have Star Wars in the late 70s. And now we're very concerned about Han Solo-style blasters and things like that. Right. And the thing about that is that most of the time the gun that say star lord is carrying or the gun that rocket is carrying is not how they solve the big problem you know Mm -hmm. like that's the thing that lets them punch the weight at all but then their ability to sort of rise up and above that is either through gadgetry or clever plans or teamwork or found family i mean i think it's very telling that gamora is clearly the most dangerous person on the guardians of the galaxy Mm -hmm. and she usually uses a sword You know, it took practice to get good at that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not as concerned. I don't love a bunch of guns all over the place, but I do feel like guns in Guardians of the Galaxy, ray guns, laser guns, blasters, Mm -hmm. are a little different. They're a different animal in a lot of ways. And Mm -hmm. and sometimes when superheroes join with another genre, you've got a there's some give and take. There's a semi-permeable membrane there where stuff that may may not usually work that way in a superhero story is going to work that way because of the right. space opera angle. Mm-hmm. All right, I have one more take to astonish. <laughs> the costume nerd says, I love Peggy and Jarvis's relationship, and I would love to know more about butlers and butler-type characters in comics. Are they all copying Alfred, or is there more there? I love that question. It is such a good question, mm-hmm. and... Since Lonnie and I are recording this on Batman Day, I'm not even going to feel bad about talking an awful lot about Batman here for a minute. <laughs> so the aide-de-camp, which is which is how I usually describe this myself. I'm not sure who first coined that phrase in terms of superhero comics, but I have mm-hmm. a, a Batman comic book from my youth um, where part of it is told from Alfred's point of view. And he mm-hmm. specifically refers to himself as the aide-de-camp to the Batman. Uh-huh. And as a kid, I didn't know what that meant, but I got it in this term, right? He's right. not a sidekick. Mm-hmm. He doesn't go out, but mm-hmm. he is nevertheless, you know, integral to this to the system, to the situation. Right. So the aide-de-camp or the butler, or to use a British military term that I can't get enough of, the Batman. Yes, really. <laughs> they actually start out as pulp staples that filter mm-hmm. their way into comics. Some examples. The Green Hornet had Cato, who mm-hmm. is a butler to him as Britt Reed, but is more a sidekick to the Green Hornet. So he kind of mm-hmm. straddles that line. You also had the Spider and Ram Singh, who... Mm-hmm 
was in a similar place, you know, uh, mostly was a butler, mostly was a driver, but every now and then he had to get out and do stuff with the spider. But mm -hmm. he really fills more the aide de camp space than the, than the sidekick space with Cato flipping it, you know, the other way. It's 60-40 right. mm -hmm. for one and 40-60 for the other. Yeah. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, though, Alfred is very much in that mold. Like he mm -hmm. is very much from that 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 early friction between pulps and comics. So yeah, he fits that space as assistant to the crime fighter in a very different capacity than the sidekick. If you ever mm -hmm. wonder who makes sure the heroes are fed, who makes sure that their <laughs> equipment is ready, who is a sympathetic ear to talk sense to them when necessary, that's the aide de camp. Uh-huh. As for Jarvis though, I would actually say he may be aide de camp to Howard, but mm -hmm. he is Peggy's sidekick. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, he starts out maybe more as her aide-de-camp at the beginning of season one. But by now in season two, he is full-bore sidekick. Yeah. It's actually one of the areas that we have conflict in this season, right? Like Anna mm -hmm. is concerned for him because he isn't the guy on the other end of the phone. He's out right. there getting shot at and stuff. Mm -hmm. But the Jarvis of the 616, though, is very much aide-de-camp to the Avengers as a whole. Like to the Avengers mm -hmm. as an organization. Yeah. And that's pretty cool because uh, whereas, you know, Alfred actually, let's be honest, the Bat family at this point is a, an organization unto itself. But it's not right. quite the same level as the Avengers when it comes to day-to-day -day operations. And that's mm -hmm. really Jarvis's job for them. But he will also, you know, make Captain America a sandwich and hear about how hard it is to not understand how computers work because, you know, <laughs> I had a radio. <laughs> But as to the follow-up question, yes, there absolutely is more there to the aide-de-camp. So mainly on television and now in the movies, you have seen a move from the more typical aide-de-camp like Alfred Pennyworth to the mm -hmm. person in the chair. Mm -hmm. We actually hung a lampshade on this in the first Spider-Man movie in Homecoming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is actually what Peter's friend Ned called himself. I want to be oh, your right. guy in a chair, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for my money, the best and possibly first, I'm not going to go to mattresses over that, but definitely the best example of the person in the chair is one of the most vital members of the Bat family, Oracle. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with Oracle at all, Lonnie? Does that name jog anything for you? No, not at all. That is a crime. Let me tell you about her. <laughs> Because you've heard of her by her real name. You know who Barbara Gordon is. I have heard of Barbara Gordon. I thought that was Catwoman. That's not Catwoman. Barbara Gordon <laughs> is daughter to Commissioner Gordon and also fights crime originally in costume as Batgirl. Batgirl. Okay. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. However, there was a time when a bunch of dudes made the dumbass decision to retire her and then another uh -huh. dumbass dude... I'm sorry, Alan Moore, this was a real misstep, so I'm going to mm -hmm. go with dumbass dude, had her paralyzed from the waist down, mostly to traumatize Batman and Commissioner Gordon. So it's a, it's a fridging oh, with no it's fridge. It's a fridging. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, some other writers came along uh, who wanted to, and I, I could go into, I actually do go into this into some of the Pulp Diction podcast, so I don't want to like retread all of it, but basically they thought she had wasted potential and reintroduced her as a computer hacker and information broker operating under the name Oracle. Mm -hmm. They did this in the Suicide Squad book, and after a couple of years of her working as Oracle for Suicide Squad, Denny O'Neill, the guy mm -hmm. in charge of all the Bat books, like readopted her back into the Bat family and mm -hmm. made her the core 
of the information gathering coalition and basically running of the operations for the Bat family. Wow. She also had her own secondary superhero group made up of all ladies called Birds of Prey because it was like, <laughs> I do stuff in Gotham. I also do stuff all over the world because I'm Oracle. Uh -huh. That's what's up. <laughs> Barbara is back in costume as Batgirl right now. And some mm -hmm. of those stories have been very good. But I also think it's a giant wasted opportunity. Uh, Oracle was just an amazing success story, like at a meta level for a character mm -hmm. that had been done wrong you know, yeah. metafictionally, but it also was a really like inspirational story. Like you had this woman who had the heart of a crime fighter. And at the end of the day, it's not her ability to kick dudes in the face that made her mm -hmm. a crime fighter. It's her willingness to do anything and to use all of her skills to fight crime. And when she could not go leaping rooftop to rooftop anymore, Barbara found another way and it's a better way because mm -hmm. She got to be a member of the Justice League as Oracle. And as much as I love Batgirl, she was probably never going to make that cut. Right. And she did a job that no one else in the Bat family was doing and no one else was capable of doing it. So is she the first like person in the chair? Is she the point of inflection for this switch from the aide de camp to the person in the chair? Do you think? I would say in terms of superhero stuff. Almost certainly. Like I have mm -hmm. not researched this heavily to make sure, but I really think in superhero things, yes. Okay. There's perhaps an older route for the concept, though. Like, if you go back to spy fiction, they often have a control. You know, somebody right. back at the home office that they can call that can give them a tidbit of information or they can mm -hmm. send information back to because they don't have time to do forensics or whatever. Right. So I think there are some older routes. But as far as superhero stuff is concerned, if she's not the first, she's still the best. And I'm pretty sure Oracle's the first. Wow. Very cool. All right. Well, that's awesome. I love learning about Oracle. And I know that's DC stuff, but I think overall, you know, you cannot separate DC from a discussion of superhero comics in general. So I hope everybody, you know, doesn't mind that. But we're going to move back into talking about our Marvel properties as we discuss these last three episodes of Agent Carter season two. In the edge of mystery, Peggy cares for Jarvis as he sits by Anna's bedside. Whitney interrogates Wilkes, handcuffed to a tractor in one of Manfredi's waste management facilities, as she suggests they work together. Susa meets Peggy at the Stark Mansion, and he tells her that Vernon had him beat down to get the uranium rods for Whitney, who has Wilkes. Peggy goes to see Manfredi and his Nana, telling him that she'll give Whitney the uranium rods in exchange for Wilkes. At the hospital, Anna wakes up, and Jarvis is given the news that she will never be able to have children. Jarvis returns to the Stark Mansion, intent on getting revenge. Peggy tells him she and Sousa will take care of Whitney Frost. Samberly uses Stark's plans to build a gamma cannon that might eliminate zero matter. Thompson gets a false report accusing Peggy of war crimes, and he tries to use it to establish some mutually assured destruction with Peggy, but she doesn't care because it's not true, and Thompson sucks, you guys! God! What the fuck is this millstone around our neck for? I hate that guy, really. Yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll get to it. All right. So Peggy trades faked uranium cores for Wilkes and almost gets away until Wilkes turns a gun on them, threatening to kill Peggy. Sousa tells him where the rods are. Jason fades through the side of the truck and disappears, leaving the gun behind. Peggy and Sousa run to the SSR and find Jack zonked out on memory loss. Vernon Masters has taken the uranium rods to Whitney Frost. Thompson joins the crew as they head out to the coordinates in the desert to stop Whitney from detonating the uranium. They're too late. She opens a zero matter rift in the sky and Wilkes floats up into it. Samberly sets up the gamma cannon to close the rift. Jarvis goes off to kill Whitney Frost. 
The Gamma Cannon fires and closes the rift, leaving Wilkes behind, rippling with Zero Matter. Jarvis shoots Whitney in the heart, but the Zero Matter heals her. Manfredi is about to kill Peggy and Jarvis, but Whitney says to keep them alive so she can control Wilkes. So she just knocks them both out. The Edge of Mystery aired on February 23rd, 2016. It was written by Brant Engelstein and directed by Meeton Hussain. In a little song and dance, we open with a dance number in which Peggy is trying to decide between Wilkes and Sousa, but she wakes up tied up on the floor of a cargo truck with Jarvis knocked out next to her. She gets them untied, they break out of the back of the moving truck and topple out, and then they're in the desert, pissed off and fighting. Meanwhile, Vernon Masters' lackeys come for Sousa and Samberly, and Thompson pretends to be loyal to Masters to save their lives. Wilkes wakes up in the back of Whitney Frost's car and objects to being taken back to the city. People are not safe around him. Thompson talks Vernon into letting Sousa and Samberly live so they can fix the gamma cannon. Peggy and Jarvis fight, and Jarvis tells her that Anna can't have children. They make up. Manfredi's goons find Peggy and Jarvis in the desert, and Peggy makes quick work of them, takes their truck, and heads back to the SSR, hell-bent for leather. She punches Masters in the face and demands Sousa and Thompson before discovering they're working with Masters to take Whitney Frost down. Whitney is trying and failing to extract the zero matter from Wilkes when Thompson shows up in another maybe double cross as he tells her he'll take her side against the SSR and Vernon in return for a seat on the council. Vernon and Thompson deliver the gamma cannon to Whitney Frost, but Samberly says Thompson had him convert it into a bomb. Thompson is going to take out Frost and Wilkes and everyone. Peggy and Sousa rush to the facility. Peggy tries to get Wilkes out, but he won't go with her. Jack double-crosses Vernon and leaves Whitney to deal with him. He goes outside and tries to detonate the bomb, but his detonator doesn't work. He demands that Samberly shut down the device interrupting the detonator signal. Samberly does, and Thompson prepares to activate the bomb. Inside, Whitney figures out the cannon is a bomb, but before she can get out, Wilkes stumbles in and explodes in a cloud of zero matter. A Little Song and Dance aired on February 23rd, 2016 and was written by Chris Dingus, Michelle Fazekas, and Tara Butters and directed by Jennifer Getzinger. In Hollywood Ending, a blast knocks everyone down outside before Thompson can activate the bomb. It wasn't him! They go inside the facility and find Wilkes, free of Zero Matter. Whitney Frost wakes up and the freed Zero Matter crawls to her and she takes it all in. Peggy, Sousa, Wilkes, and Thompson rush out to get away from Whitney, but she follows them until Jarvis hits her with a car, with Howard Stark in the back seat. Everyone piles into the car and heads back to the SSR, where they take Vernon's dudes into custody. At the Stark mansion, Wilkes is consumed by guilt as he tries to help Stark solve the problem of the Zero Matter, which he says will consume everything on Earth if Whitney opens another rift. Meanwhile, Whitney's obsessively trying to figure out Zero Matter, and Manfredi feels like she's not herself anymore. Nana tells him that if he really loves her, he needs to make a deal with the devil. Manfredi shows up at the Stark mansion, pretending to hold Jarvis hostage for a while until he and Stark laugh. Turns out they're old friends, because Howard is shady as hell, you guys. <laughs> anyway, Manfredi wants the zero matter out of Whitney so that he can have his girl back. He tells them that she's figuring out how to open another rift without an atomic explosion. Peggy says they can't stop her, so they have to beat her to it. Open up the rift, get the zero matter out of Whitney, and then close the rift. Manfredi gets Whitney out of her room of equations, and Peggy and Sousa break in and steal her research. Stark and Wilkes figure out a plan. It's tricky, but it just might work. Which means it's virtually guaranteed. It's a genre <laughs> convention, friends. <laughs> Everyone works together to build a rift generator. They go to an old Hollywood lot and open the rift. Whitney Frost senses the disturbance in the force and heads out to find it. 
She goes to the rift, they pull the zero matter out of her, and she screams as they take her away. But Stark's radio control isn't working, and they need someone to do the manual override. While everyone argues over who should take on the suicide mission, Sousa ties a hose to his waist and tries to reach the manual override. As the rift starts to suck him in, everyone else holds onto the hose. Jarvis suggests putting the gamma cannon into the hover car and sending it into the rift to close it. It works! Later, Peggy says her goodbyes as she plans to go back to New York. Whitney is in an asylum, her connection to reality broken as she talks to her dead husband Chadwick, and Manfredi looks on sadly. Jarvis drives Peggy to the SSR to finish up her paperwork. He tries to convince her to stay in Los Angeles and hints that Sousa might be a compelling reason to stay. She goes up to finish up with Sousa and he tells her she's reckless and she kisses him. They make out in his office and we pull out as music plays. In his hotel room, a mysterious gloved man comes in, shoots Thompson, thus becoming my hero, and takes the redacted <laughs> file about Peggy. Hollywood Ending aired on March 1st, 2016, was written by Chris Dinges, Michelle Fazekas, and Tara Butters, and directed by Jennifer Getzinger. All right, Joshua. So here we are at the end of Agent Carter season two, at the end of all Agent Carter that we have. And I know that the pressing question for you, the thing that is weighing most heavily on your heart, is Thompson alive? No, he's obviously dead. All I have is headcanon and I'm taking it and running. <laughs> Nobody cares about Thompson. Let's just open. That's one of my notes for later on in the thing. Nobody cares about Thompson. The whole Thompson thing, the like incessant run of double cross and double cross and double cross. Whose freaking side is he on? Nobody knows. At any given moment, it could be something different. I have absolutely no idea. Um, I do kind of like the um, the way that Peggy deals with Thompson. I like that when he comes to her with the mutually assured destruction that she's just like, whatever, dude, I don't even have time for this bullshit. You know, she treats him like the child that he is. And so for the opportunities that we see Peggy just not getting pulled into his nonsense that she is so far like out of his league professionally, you know, um, I do kind of enjoy that. But honestly, like if we could just put the Thompson stuff to bed at this point and just be like, it's not even worth discussing. It's all really stupid. Yeah. It is. It's your favorite part of him and Peggy is really good. It really is. But it also yeah. demonstrates why we don't need to give a shit about him, because guess right. what? Peggy doesn't give a shit about him since she sets the stakes yeah. for us. Mm -hmm. We can just ignore this fair haired child and hope that he's caught up in a web of his own corruption or, you know, ignominiously yeah. shot to death in his hotel room. I'm fine with that, too. <laughs> and he's just this like wild, you know, like untethered water hose spraying <laughs> double crosses all over everything yes. in this story. And like, yes. I get that, like, he, because he's he's plugged in functionally to a couple of the twists and turns in the story. But I don't think that we need him. I think that if we went through and combed him out, we could probably do without him. Um, you know, I do like Chad Michael Murray, like, and I like the way that he plays the character. There is a little bit of charm there but Thompson as written is not interesting to me I don't care and every time he's on the on the screen I'm just like okay can we move or like very rarely in Agent Carter am I looking at the clock and being like okay when is this over but every yeah. time he's on the on the screen I don't care him and Vernon and, Masters yes. did not care about Vernon Masters either at least Vernon Masters has a point and yes. if they had just either let 
Thompson be Vernon Masters through this entire thing? Just let him be the villain. Let him be the bad guy. Right. Or let Thompson be the one who figures out that Vernon Masters is a shit heel and he comes to Peggy and is like, I'll flip way earlier on. Do one of these things. And flips once. And flips once. Every time we turn around, he's flipping. And there's this whole thing like, ooh, whose side is Thompson on? Ooh, he hit Sousa in the stomach. He's bad. Oh, no, he said he had to sell it. He's good. He's not. He's not. He's terrible all along. I don't care whose side he's on. Yeah. Behold my Thompson field. It is bereft of fucks. I just... I love it. All right. So let's put that to bed and let's talk a little bit about Peggy. Um, As usual, I love the Peggy throws a bunch of men around in the background shot. Like that is one of my favorite things when they show up at Manfredi's and you're looking through the kitchen, like the little hole in the kitchen door. (laughs) She's just tossing men all over the place. Well, Seuss is there just like, yeah, you're going to snowplow this shit for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Okay. And and two. To that end, I know that they're there to make friends, and so, of course, she couldn't just come in and plug all these dudes in the head, and plus, that would be kind of a weird shift in tone regardless. But again, let me point out, Peggy comes in here and Batmans the shit out of these guys. Like, she just (laughs) is a wrecking ball with fists and feet. Yes. She's on her way. She could hold Mm -hmm. her own in a superhero universe. She'll be okay, you guys. Yeah, no, she's very, very tough, and I like it. Although, like, I always go through this thing whenever we have, you know, women, like, you know, heroes, and they're dressed to the nines, which, by the way, when you're dressed to the nines, those are not, you know, if you've got, like, yoga pants on and a T-shirt, yes, you can kick some ass. But in those outfits... Like, and those shoes, being able to kick ass that way, I know it's not supposed to be how it is. I know it's supposed to be how it feels. I know that I'm not supposed to be worried about that stuff. It's nonsense and it doesn't matter. But as a woman, I look at these outfits and I'm like, oh, fuck that. Like, if that's how powerful she is in two-inch heels, imagine what this woman would do in a pair of Doc Martens. Like, it, she would just destroy everyone. So um, so that always makes me a little bit <laughs> wary of it, because it just seems so impossible for her to move in the kinds of clothes that she wears. Um, but they do look damn good. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and let this live under the Law of Awesome heading, because yes. it's awesome. And also awesome. because superhero costumes should be wildly impractical the more impractical the better thank you yeah i'm not saying i'm right i'm saying it's just it's always in my head <laughs> I like feel it's just you. it's one of those things i just can't get past um, I, I get it but i'm also just like in a place where i'm like yeah capes that's legit in a fight that's definitely sure. not something somebody would use against you immediately or no, long exactly. hair or whatever exactly. yeah i'm all it's, fine no. i'm fine with it you're 100% correct in this scenario. I am not defending my opinion. I am just sharing it. That is all I've got. Um, all right. So we've got this uh, terrible dream sequence in the middle at the beginning of the second episode. What um, the I, okay. fuck is this, Lonnie? Why is I this here? I don't. I, I They had minutes to fill. I have no idea. First of all, um, dream sequences in general, not all of them. People who love Restless on Buffy, just, just calm down. It's fine. Um <laughs> But I generally I hate dream sequences for exactly this reason, because we just want to take a moment to do they wanted to do a musical number. How do we do a musical number in this world? There's no way Peggy's getting up and doing karaoke in the middle of this shit. So let's do a dream sequence where we can have this whole thing where she is trying to decide between these two men. And you know what, Peggy? 
is a woman in the middle of saving the fucking world. I don't think that she is concerned about her romantic situation at this time. I don't think that these men as possible paramours are number one (laughs) in her thought process right now. If she's dreaming about anything, it's about how to take Whitney Frost the fuck down. So first of all, I don't like it because dream sequences... They interrupt the uh, story, the narrative where it is. They don't contribute to the narrative. If you take, you can always tell, writers, you can always tell. If you can take a scene out and it changes nothing, like nothing, then you don't need it. It's bullshit. It's self-indulgence. So this is about, I don't know, five minutes of incredible self-indulgence. That said, I mean... I love seeing a musical number. I love seeing <laughs> Haley Atwell do this thing. I love seeing Sousa singing and dancing. Um, I, I enjoyed it I, as, a, as a DVD extra, as something, you know, on the website and the YouTube channel. <laughs> I would have loved it. it. Yes, exactly. I would have loved it. In this particular context, it's terrible, even though it brings Angie back for a minute. And I love Angie and I miss Angie. So it was Mm. lovely to see her again. Um, You know, we've got like, so there's a lot of it that I love. Like, it's not that in and of itself, I don't love the dream sequence. I do. I hate it as part of this narrative, interrupting this narrative and also suggesting that this is the thing that Peggy Carter, her brain is consumed with. Like, girl brains can't handle if there's a a romance (laughs) in the background Right. Girl brains can't process that in the background while they save the fucking universe. Right. I think that Peggy has the ability to a compartmentalize and b prioritize. And I don't think that like because when you sleep, you're dreaming about the thing that is most on your mind. Right. That you need to process what she needs to process is slapping Whitney Frost down and considering that we have so many themes of women you know, women and power like this whole second season is about women and power. If she's going to have a fucking dream sequence, that better be it better be her and Dottie and Angie and Whitney, you know, in this dance. Yeah. Give me a dance number where the dance is actually helping her figure out how to take Whitney down. I'm in. I'm in. You know, yeah, do, a, do a Jets and Sharks dance off between Whitney and, and Peggy or something. But yeah, and that's yeah, something in that dream gives her. So it has a narrative link that something in that dream gives her the answer that she needs maybe not in the moment that she wakes up but later on when she takes Whitney down it's because of something she processed in that dream absolutely but because she's choosing between these two fuck you yeah god I hated that I hated that yeah uh this is your red flag friends that um 99 of the romance in peggy carter remains garbage i did find one romantic entanglement that actually works and is very good we'll get to it but it's not (laughs) peggy and anybody (laughs) we also have um this thing where peggy um launches herself on vernon masters and Beats the living hell out of this dude. Into um, it. What? I'm into it. I, okay. I thought you were going to say I can't do it. And I was like, wait, you didn't like that? Because I freaking no. loved that. Okay. No. I <laughs> beat that guy into hamburger. He has beat every one of them licks coming. Absolutely. And here's the thing. like, I absolutely hate the trope where a woman slaps a man. 
right? And we're like, no, that's fine because she's cute, because she's weak. It's adorable. It's passionate. It's funny, right? And we use that as a joke. No, that's like abuse, you know? Um, But when Peggy lands a beat down on an asshole who has it coming, um, you know, she is just engaging in the world in the in the world in the way that these men do, you know, um, yeah. and she takes him the fuck down like that is OK. That is all right, because we're also not using her ineffectually slapping at Vernon as a way of deconstructing her power. So we so we make her weaker. We laugh when we laugh at women. First of all, a woman shouldn't hit a man. It's not OK for anybody to hit anybody. It's still abuse. So end of that discussion. But second of all, using the woman ineffectually slaps a man thing as a way of shining a light on her lack of power and how cute it is when she's angry. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're doing here with Peggy. This is a different thing. This is an absolute use of earned power in her superhero canon because she does have even though her powers aren't superhero, she is kind of a superhero, you know, Um, so she's utilizing her power. She is a normal person who is Mm -hmm. able. This is worth saying. This is worth saying because you're right. Okay, and this is this is kind of where I was going with a. with the gun stuff is that she yeah. does have a gun because she's a government agent, but that's not the thing that puts her over the top every time. You know, yeah, she is a normal person who is able to punch her weight in mm-hmm. at least the shallow end of the superhero pool. And that is yes. nothing to sneeze at, friends. Some of kind my of favorite amazing. characters are those. My favorite character ever started out as one of those before she became an actual superhero. Oh, so. let me guess. Is that Hellcat? You're damn right. Patsy Walker, All a.k.a. Right. Hellcat. <laughs> Hard eyes of my life. See, I'm learning. I'm learning all of this stuff. But the thing is that like in a TV show, in a season of a TV show that is about feminine power, um, her giving the beat down to Vernon Masters is completely fine because that is her exhibiting her power. It is not about her being a woman, you know, with like trying to exert power that she is unable to exert. We are not laughing at her. Um, We are not showing her in an abusive situation where she's hitting somebody who can't punch back. Peggy does not punch down. Right. She hits people who can hit back. And Vernon Masters has a tremendous load of power in that particular circumstance. So. um, So, yeah, like I'm just saying, like I have often complained about how much I hate the woman slaps a man trope um, and because it makes it look cute when a woman hits a man and it's not cute. It's abuse. Um, But this is different. And I loved it. And I was here for it. Yeah, I, I really agree. And it especially reframes something I talked about in our last episode, the mm-hmm. the kind of rogue cop thing mm-hmm. that Peggy subverts in a way that makes me feel much better about the idea of her as a rogue agent or a rogue cop. Yeah. And this mm-hmm. is a good example. Like there are lots of examples in pop culture of the rogue agent or cop coming in and punching their uh, kind of mealy mouthed superior Mm-hmm. And then walking out, but it's one dude and another dude, and it just doesn't seem to right. to carry narrative weight. It's just like a moment that we're checking a box. Mm-hmm. This is this is actually kind of important, especially because the rest of her friends come out and they're like, "For God's sake, stop!" You know? Yeah. And she was like, "I want to know where they are." She thought they were dead, you know. Right, and she right. was not fucking around. Peggy was done fucking around. Like she was going in, and she was serious business, hell bent for leather. And I absolutely loved it. Um, but getting through to the stuff that okay, this romance with Susa. <laughs> I believe I've okay. made my feelings known. I know. I, okay. 
here's the thing. Like, you know me. Like, I love a romance. If yeah, Peggy yeah. wants somebody, I want her to have him, right? Um, because I want her to be happy because she deserves to be happy. And somebody should be making Peggy happy every goddamn night. I'm just saying. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, that's whatever. I like Anvera Jokai. I like him in the role. I like Sousa. Um the but the whole thing, the way it's executed just hits me wrong in like every there's this whole dispassionate talk. Oh, you know, like she, you know, she gave up or he gave up the information to Jason Wilkes when Jason Wilkes was holding the gun on Peggy. And when he's giving her this talk, he's like, you know, Jason Wilkes is not a hostage. He's a hostile. He's on the other side. Yada, 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 yada. Giving her the speech about you got to be dispassionate. Right. And then she throws it back at him. But I would just like to say that the the woman is so emotional and cannot control her emotions kind of bullshit. Um, in general is terrible, but at Peggy, at Peggy, okay, granted, yes, she did, like, you know, really try to take Vernon Masters' head off, but he had it coming, and the thing is, is that emotional is not always a bad thing. Emotional and expressing your emotions is okay. She came in swinging on Masters because of a hundred things he had done, including most recently, as far as she was concerned, killing her friends, right? Right. That is not an overreaction. And Mm -hmm. what I particularly appreciated in this conversation between Peggy and Sousa, where Sousa's like, oh, would you have just let him shoot me? And she Mm -hmm. won't make eye contact with him and doesn't answer yeah. Now, there is room for conversation here, but as far as I'm concerned, that was Peggy not wanting to say, yes, absolutely, I would have let him perforate yes, you. Yes, that's how I read it, too. That's uh-huh. how I read it, too, that she She's absolutely like, would have. If yeah. I say that to him, he's going to believe it, and this the whole thing, whatever it is, is over, right. you know, right. uh, is yeah. good. I like that. I, mm-hmm. I Yeah. So I really do kind of like the subversion of that conversation where the guy who was not dispassionate is giving the speech about dispassion. Oh, would you let him shoot me? Yes. It's our job. (laughs) It's the world. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, Peggy Carter saw Captain America go down in the ice. Yes. Like (laughs) she has she has lost possibly the best man ever to exist. And I mean, I like Sousa. I like him. I think he needs to be set straight on a couple of things, you know, but I like him. So many men from the 40s did. Uh, You know what? And fair enough, like on the scale of men from the 40s. I mean, he's a goddamn gem, you know, Um But, like, this whole thing, like, the, and I like that she sets it back on him, where he's like, you know, you really got to control your emotions. And she's like, I, I have to control my emotions. I have to, like, I like what she's like, dude, you know, turn that gimlet eye back on yourself. I like that. So there's a lot of stuff that I actually really do like about Peggy and Sousa. But this ending... This Hollywood ending where she is about to go back to New York. Why? Because her life is in New York, because she loves New York, because she's not an L.A. girl. Right. And then Jarvis is like, yeah, but there is a man, you know, and that's it. (laughs) There's there's a man like you could have. But Peggy, I understand that you have your own power and that, you know, your own value and that you don't need a man to give you validation and that all of this kind of stuff and your life is in New York. But there's a man in Los Angeles. Like, how can you leave? You know, that Jarvis, that Jarvis of all fucking people is saying, change your life for a man. You know, when Jarvis says change your life for me. 
stay here because I love you and I want you here and you're my best friend, you know, like, okay, you know, because that is him expressing this familial love for Peggy and that he wants, you know, basically his best friend to be in the same town with him. Like, that's okay. But to say, like, me as your best friend and your sidekick and the person who loves you most in the world, I'm not a compelling reason to stay. But Sousa might fuck you. So, hey, you know, there is Dick in New York. She's fine. Peggy is not going to have a problem finding a man. Um, Okay, I agree with you that this whole conversation should not have happened. Uh, Mm -hmm. But also, I think if there was a person who was going to deliver it and that I would believe it from, it would be Jarvis, a man who threw his entire life away for love. That's true. I mean, he does have a romantic soul. He's the guy. If any, nobody should have given this talk. But since apparently yes. we had to have it, he's <laughs> the right guy. If it has to come from anybody, Jarvis is absolutely the delivery system for this. But it ain't good, but and I don't care way, for it. Don't do it. Just don't do right. it. Right? Yeah. Jarvis should be the one saying, you know, like, I love you. I want you here. You make my life better. I wish that you would stay, but if your life is in New York, if what you want is in New York, then you should go to it. And if he had even said, but if what you want isn't in New York, like make it about what she wants. Like if he had even said it that way, I would have been like, all right. But instead, you know, perhaps this man can give you a compelling reason to stay, (laughs) you know, feels like it's just like you don't have a man in your life, Peggy. And despite the fact that I have seen you be amazing in every circumstance and you don't need a man in your life, you're lacking one. And therefore, I think you should stay in this town. It just feels like it's about Sousa rather than being about Peggy. And that's what I didn't like about it. And then she goes up and she starts talking to Sousa. And they have this whole argument and she's really reckless, you know, and then all of a sudden they're doing this 1940s in the 1940s. I don't know if you watch a lot of black and white films, Joshua. Oh, yes, I do. As a as a fan of noir and hard boiled and and it bled out into some other things where I was like, sure, do a musical number. What the hell, friends? Everybody tap dances in 1945, it seems. I love it. It's very awesome, and I love it. I, I love the romantic comedies of the like 30s, the screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s, some of my favorite things. The thing is, the kisses. The kisses <laughs> in the 30s and the 40s are basically two people smashing their faces together <laughs> like a couple of soccer balls. And I'm like, how did, how does that even, how is that an enjoyable kiss in anybody's universe? Like, it looks like their teeth are mashing. Like, somebody's going to need to see a doctor after these kisses. And so we've got this 1940s thing with Peggy and Sousa, and they've got the music from the 40s and this whole thing, and it's this whole aesthetic. And so they do this 1940s smash your faces together kiss. It looks like it hurts. It looks very uncomfortable. It is not romantic. It doesn't really work. Um, and I hate those kisses. Anyway, it's one of the things from the 40s. Like, you don't have to take everything from the <laughs> 40s aesthetic. We're not doing this in black and white. You know, like you can update some things. And perhaps maybe this one thing, the fact that people don't kiss like violent like that. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, it's terrible. I feel like uh, the kiss says everything that we need to know about what passes for the romantic relationship between Peggy and Sousa. Uh, yes, forced, intense, and uncomfortable. Yep. And mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest with you, the only thing I could think of was not how bad the kiss was, but I was just wondering about 
Violet. Oh, yeah. I was just like, um, have you had a conversation? With, does she know? <laughs> well, she dumped him, so I guess that's it. Yeah. But... I mean, that also that also was really like it doesn't make Sousa look no, good, really right. He loves he loves another woman and then forces this like asks his girlfriend to marry him when he is in love with another woman, then puts her in the position of having to break up with him so that he looks faultless here, you know, then doesn't process that at all, goes immediately to like, well, she thinks we're in love, googly eyes at Peggy, <laughs> your ball in your court, you know, um, and the woman ends up throwing herself at him. And I'm just like, what is, you know, I don't know, like, and the thing is, like, this comes from, I actually kind of like, I like Sousa. I like the character, like, it's just some of the things that we have him do are like, so weirdly bad. Um, no, I wish I I, I wish I bought into it, honestly. Like, I wish that I bought yeah. into this romance. But nobody is doing mm-hmm. the work to make me. So I'm not gonna. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty bad. Um, but, you know, let's let's talk about what's good. Right. We got some Jarvis Jarvis. Oh, my God. James Darcy to see him play this deep, like dramatic heartbreak at Anna's bedside. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as he plays the funny bumbling sidekick. Like, that is some range. It was amazing. And the way that he was able to kind of, like, shift through that. Because we have him, you know, he's always the the funny guy, the sidekick, you know, the, the, the flavor, you know. And then he moves in. As soon as she gets shot, he shifts into this, like, really tragic space. And it's so wonderful. He does such an amazing job with it. And then we slowly, gradually bring him back into sidekick, a sidekick, but we earn it mm-hmm. as he tries to kill Whitney. And then he has this fight with Peggy. And this fight with Peggy, honestly, I think is one of my favorite parts in all of, you know, both seasons of Agent Carter. I love the two of them as friends. I love them having this discussion. You know, where he is talking to her about, oh, everybody, you know, everybody around you dies. And the second he says it, you see like the regret in his face. And he says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, you know, and you can see how that affects her, how deeply like he knows what cuts her, you know, and her response. You've begged me to come on these adventures. You know, Um, that's what they are to you. They're larks, an enjoyable way to spend the evening. But when the consequences come down, I'm the one who holds that. I'm the one who's responsible for that. This is a cost and I have paid it, you know, Um, and that her saying that to him is so powerful and such incredible dialogue. And it speaks so well to that relationship. And then when he tells her that Anna can't have children, you know, that the future that they wanted together is lost, that he has sustained a loss, that this is real to him. Um, she is instantly 100 percent right there at his side. I love that relationship. I like to kind of believe headcanon wise that they had to have another kind of wrap up conversation because they Mm -hmm. didn't really deal with the fact that Jarvis really went off book and did something he absolutely should not have done and really betrayed Peggy's trust to do it. And the reason Mm -hmm. I need to have that conversation in the back of my mind is because it makes Peggy's reaction here perfect. Like if they never revisit the problem, then... I worry about their relationship going forward, right? So I kind of have to have that. But the idea Mm -hmm. that she made an assertion, you haven't lost Mm -hmm. anything in this. 
Not really. Yeah. And he was able to say, mm-hmm. I've actually lost quite a lot. And she instantly was like, now I'm here for you. Right. But we also, and for me, I'll add, but we also need to finish this conversation where you went crazy. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. And I mean, so yeah. it's I, I got a headcanon it because I love the ending mm-hmm. of this so much. She is so much his friend, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's why she's so angry to start with because mm-hmm. he betrayed her. And then as soon as she knows there's a real loss there, boom, she's right back in his corner. Yeah. yeah let's do and this. And I love thing. that. And the thing is, is that that, like, you know, I, I talk a lot about how I love love stories, right? And love stories are not always romances. Sometimes they are, but not always. Right. Um, and the thing is, is that what we have with um, Susa and Peggy is a romance. It is forced. Mm-hmm. It is about this big romantic gesture moment we have these you know moments of of tension and eyes and looking and almost kissing and all that kind of bullshit right but this what is going on with peggy and jarvis this deep sharing this deep concern for each other this ability to tell each other the truth you know to yell at each other when they have to right um and but yet when it comes down to it, like they are going to have each other's back no matter what. So here we have this beautiful love story being told between Jarvis and Peggy. And then this like shitty, you know, kind of staple to the wall romance with Sousa. <laughs> and you can build like there's so much in Sousa and Peggy where you have a lot of that friendship and that deep respect that we've already established that you could work with to build it as a love story. But instead, what they do is they shift it into a romance. You know, and so a lot of times, a lot of times you get one or the other. You get a love story, you know, with like friends and family and all of that kind of stuff. Or you get a romance, you know, and if you try to like when you mix the two, that's when these stories are absolutely at their best. Now, I don't want a romance between Jarvis and Peggy. I love the love story the way that it is. But understanding, Mm -hmm. especially for the writers out there, like understanding that a love story and a romance are not mutually exclusive and that the best romances are based in a love story. You know, that's how you do it. I think both in fiction and in real Absolutely. life, honestly. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. They are. Um, so speaking of a love story, I'm kind of in love with Manfredi. Let me defend myself. <laughs> what? You don't have to defend yourself. This this is the romance I was talking about earlier that actually works. The love story between Manfredi and Whitney story. is for the ages. Yes. Even though it's kind of a one way. I'm not sure that she loves him, but man, he loves her. Um, when he says to her that mark on your face is nothing to be ashamed of. It's power. I love this for a million reasons. I love it. One, because he sees her. Right. He sees the mark on her face and he thinks it's beautiful. He sees her need for power and he thinks it's wonderful and he loves it. He is not intimidated by her power. He loves her power. He loves her for everything that she is. So here's why I like Manfredi. One, he's played by Ken Marino. (laughs) I am never not going to since the days of Vinnie Van Lowe and Veronica Mars. There is nothing Ken Marino will do that I will not absolutely be there for putting my money down. I love him so much. He's not intimidated by powerful women. He likes them. He turns to his Nana, right, for everything, for advice, for everything. Like, he is so wonderful. He is truly a man in love. He doesn't want anything from Whitney but for her to let him love her, right, which is just such a wonderful, selfless expression of love. Okay, yes, yes, he is also, you know, kind of a psychopath. Fine, but I love everything about Manfredi. He just delights me every minute. Even the stupid thing where he comes in holding Jarvis at gunpoint while Jarvis is carrying the mustard. And then he and Howard Stark have that fun little laugh while everybody else, you know, 
thinks about how they have to change their shorts, right? Um, so I, I love even that. I love everything. And I understood his motivations on everything. And I understand that he's a crazy, dangerous like character, that he is, he is not a good man, but he's a wonderful character. And I just, I love him. Can't disagree with any of that. <laughs> It's seriously the only romance that they put any time into in this yeah. entire two seasons. Yeah. No, so, it's pretty good. And he's so and I actually think I actually think it's really sad mm -hmm. to me at the end when Whitney is uh is hallucinating Chadwick yeah. while Manfredi comes to see her. I'm honestly not sure that I buy that. Like I kind of feel like that might have been a writing misstep. Yeah. Um because I don't, I do think that she actually had feelings. Love might be a little strong, right. but I think she actually had feelings for Manfredi. And before she was overwhelmed by the voice of the Zero yeah. Matter, she was appreciating the things he was saying about her, about don't be ashamed of your face, that's power. Right. Like she was there for and that. And when he brought her, he got her out of her room because he said, I need your power. And she yeah. went, she left the thing that she was most interested in in that moment to help him. So I do think, like, what yeah. I really, I think, would have loved in that final moment is that she's hallucinating Manfredi. She's not hallucinating Chadwick. Yeah. Um, but what she's saying to the Manfredi in her head, she can't see the Manfredi in real life, you know? And if you have him yeah. that close, yes. that close to her, and yet not able to reach her and not able to pull her back to him. Like that I think would be an even more tragic ending to that and, and such a heartbreak given given the fact that Manfredi is kind of, you know, like one of the most compelling characters in this season. I mean, he is just a delight. I just absolutely love him. I agree, all good stuff. So that leads us to Whitney. Right. Um, Whitney, yes. Evil. Absolutely. She is bad news. I love her. I love her so much. She is great evil. The best villains are the ones that you can sympathize with. And here we have a woman who has been denied access to her own genius, who has been denied, you know, herself for her whole life, who has been reduced to just being a pretty face on a movie poster, you know, mm -hmm. which a lot of the pretty face stories that you hear from the 40s, that's what they're looking for. You know, they want to be Rita Hayward. They want to be discovered in a, in a drugstore and then be famous. What she wanted was so much more than that. What she wanted was a place where she could express her genius. And she was denied that. And so now here she is being given power, right? Power that will never, she will never have to shut down. She will never have to hide her light under a bushel ever again. And that wanting that, wanting that desperately, that's sympathetic to me, man. Like, I know she's terrible. Like, I'm not saying she's a good person, but man, I love her. And I love this this discussion, this meditation on feminine power that mm -hmm. is this season between Dottie, between Peggy, between Whitney. What are we saying about feminine power? I don't think they really landed the message or what it was they were trying to say, but they were at least talking about it throughout mm -hmm. the entire season, you know? And this one line where she says, such a pity that two accomplished women should be standing on opposite sides. You know, and I'm like, game recognizes game, you know, and it's all feminine game. And I kind of love that. Well, I mean, I threw down the gauntlet right away and said she's one of the tiny handful of actually good villains in the MCU and possibly yeah. the best one. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah, I love all of that. And the sympathy that you can have for her, 
Um, mm-hmm. Like if there's any reason for the flashbacks from the, our last set of episodes, it's nice to see that there was probably a point where she could have used her power, yeah. her intellect for good and for helping mm-hmm. other people. Um, mm-hmm. And th- that desire was stolen from her by terrible circumstances and yeah. bad parenting and or at mm-hmm. least ineffective parenting and right. a man who came along and took advantage of her. But she was also taking advantage of him in a lesser way because what other road to power does she have other than to be beautiful? It's literally yes. what she's been told her whole life. Yes. You know, um, I, yeah, she's completely sympathetic. She's completely villainous. She definitely rises to the level of super villain with, uh, with both, you know, that theatrical speech giving, but yeah. also recognizing Peggy as her arch nemesis. Like yeah. that's, Man, she's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. No, it's amazing, amazing stuff. Um, less impressed am I uh, with Jason <laughs> Wilkes. Yeah. Um, okay. And the thing is, is that like he is basically used as plot spackle. It seems to me he and Thompson, right? Whenever yeah. we need something to happen in a scene, let's just throw in a double cross from one of these guys, you know, and their motivations in the end are so muddy that like, I don't even know. He wants to be corporeal. But he wants the zero matter, but he doesn't want the zero matter, but he's under the control of the zero matter, you know, sometimes, right? (laughs) I have lost track of who this guy is. The choices he makes in any given moment seem inconsistent. Just basically whatever we need to happen in a scene will just somehow motivate Wilkes and make him do it. You know, Um, he's willing to sacrifice himself to save people, but he wants to be corporeal so bad that he'll kill Peggy. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And the thing is, I don't have a problem with any of the given motivations at any given time. I just wish they were consistent and clear. And we've already got Thompson flip flopping like a dead fish on a on a boat, you know, um, yeah. every time we turn around to have Wilkes do this as well. It just it feels so inconsistent. And I don't see. And then again, like here we have this guy being tossed like a possession from person yeah. to person. You know, I mean, everybody grabs him like he's a a satchel of wheat, you know, and they just toss him in the back of the van and there he goes, you know. Um, So I kind of don't blame him for wanting to shoot all of them. And I really think I would have appreciated like a fuck all y'all flavor of of Wilkes in this. I think I would have liked that a little bit better where he's like, you know what? All of you people fucking leave me alone, you know? Yeah, I I mean, I agree. And I think that works better for where we were going on the romance side, you know, like Mm -hmm. we loved him in act one when he was Mm -hmm. kind of a romantic foil for Sousa who wasn't really available. So not even right. More like a, a, an assumed foil as far as Peggy was concerned, you know, Mm -hmm. but then he's so focused on Peggy to the exclusion of his own survival in act two, that none of act three makes sense. Like I would have liked to have seen him have some, less connected to reality moments in act two to set up the fact that sometimes he's legit not under his own control or he's influenced or whatever. And yeah, by the end of it, I mean, Peggy is definitely the person who least treated him like a possession, but the organization she works for and all the people she works with Uh did use it, you know? So cool. No cookie for being a decent human being. If he said, fuck everybody but Peggy, I would. But also, I don't want to date you anymore. You know? Right. Well, and this (laughs) is the other thing, too. Like, here we have this whole thing where Peggy's doing this dance with these two guys and she has this romance. And that is the thing that's on her mind. Same thing with Wilkes. Look, I understand 
Peggy is an absolute hot snack. Like, I get it, you know. But when you're infused with zero matter that makes you incorporeal and like you don't know what's going on and, you know, and everything and the, like the the thing that you do, science is betraying you, you know, yeah. Um, like all of these things, I think at that moment, you know, maybe the little like the flirtatious thing can just be set aside for now. I'm not saying you have to give up on Peggy. I'm saying that right now that being a priority, like when he's in the cage and he pulls her in for a kiss, I swear to God, I want to find that writer and just be like, what the fuck are you doing? And again, it's this like enforced romance as opposed to a love story. Love stories will work for you. Forcing a romance just so that you have some kind of weird love triangle tension, which you already have on Sousa's side because of Violet, yeah. although he ditches Violet. The whole thing is weird. The romances don't work, and Wilkes, Wilkes had so much potential to be so much more complicated, especially as a black man, you know, contrasted with Whitney, you know, because their relationship to power is different, but, you know, sympathetic from each. Like, I think they could each understand each other at a certain point, you know, Um, like, I think that that would have been so much more interesting. We almost had a really great kind of discussion on that. Um, and then it just ends up being this like googly eyes at Peggy thing and it's, it's forced and not at all good, but he really had so much potential to be such a better character and they just didn't do right by him. Yeah, no, I agree. I really loved him in the first third of this and it just became less and less return on that investment as we went. And it's certainly not the performance's fault because he's doing everything no. he can with what they're giving him but yeah he was not they just giving stopped good writing wilks they just yeah. stopped yeah they didn't they well they saw him i think they they wanted to use him as plot spackle for various things for the romantic plot for the you know the back and forth um the zero matter thing instead of really like discussing what zero matter does to a person like and if we had some kind of visual you know we see the zero matter crawling under his skin at one point like if we have that to indicate to us when he is and is not under his own control that clarity could have made this work a little bit better true but this man like he's you know he's losing his you know his life's work which by the way I, I don't know. And it's a, like your first love is your life's work. People like that. Their first love is their life's work. Whitney, yeah. her first love is her life's work. Like that's the kind of thing. And Whitney, we did this right. She was, you know, she was perfectly happy to entertain man Freddie as her, her man boy, you know, whatever. Um, but she was not googly eyed. Right. And I think that Wilkes as a scientist, you know, as a black scientist in the 40s trying to get get access to his life's work, the one true love, right? You know, because mm-hmm. that is your one true, for these people, that is your one true love. When you have that kind of passion for your work, that is like the number one thing, you know? Um, and so to reduce him to being just this sort of romantic foil for Sousa, I think takes a huge opportunity for a discussion about what happens to people when they are denied access to themselves, to what is oh, essentially yeah. their greatest greatest part their own genius what does that do to somebody you know that's an interesting discussion and we almost had it Whitney and and Jason had that discussion at well she had it with him anyway right you know for like a minute and a half and we were we kept almost there and Whitney. Just drop it 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. We continued yeah, to write right. Whitney. We stopped right. writing Wilkes. Yeah. Stopped writing Wilkes. Um, somebody they could have stopped writing, probably Howard Stark. I think Howard Stark could have been a little less written. He is less <laughs> a character than just a caricature. And like every time I see him, you know, I feel this little bit of delight because I kind of like him. And then he says something like, Peg, I want you to know I'm not thinking any unsavory thoughts about you right now as we're in the middle of a rift in the nature of reality trying to save this guy by holding a hose. And then he's like, oh, hold it. There's one. I just, I can't. It, that like, was too much. It's too much. No. It's yeah. just, it's, and also like the whole ridiculousness with, you know, let Jarvis put down the mustard and you can't wear skivvies and a, and a schwitz and like all this weird shit with Manfredi, you know, like that was overwritten. He's, the Stark is way overwritten and he really falls into caricature surrounded by Jarvis and Peggy and Anna. It just makes him look even more. It throws him even more into a really, pardon the pun, stark relief with everybody else. Um, and it ain't good. Yeah. Yeah. I think I appreciated, again, second act, just to kind of flip flop it on Wilkes. I mm-hmm. appreciated second act Howard so much more, you know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he was still clearly a womanizing dirt bag-ish type fellow you know yeah um but never to peggy right mm-hmm. like he would never right. mm-hmm. less because that he won't be a dirtbag with her and more that i i could actually see peggy kind of being a doorway through which howard would be like what if all women are like peggy and they are right. howard you idiot you know <laughs> um like that would be great uh yeah i, I even yeah it's it's just too much here at the end. It's a little too Howard for Howard and undermines the stuff that I really liked about him throughout the yeah. all of season one and most of this season. Yeah, the opportunity for him to have, I don't know, like even the tiniest bit of growth. Um, I know he's not one of our major characters and spending a lot of time on a story arc, you know, a character arc for Howard Stark is probably, you know, wasted energy and works against a lot of what we bring Howard Stark and what you bring a Howard Stark into a story for. Um, (laughs) But giving him just a little bit and like or even just not having him say that shit to Peggy in the middle of this thing. Um, I found that to be just a little bit too much. All right, so Joshua, here we are at the end of Agent Carter, uh, season two, episodes eight through 10, the season finale of season two, the last Agent Carter that we have so far. I hold out hope that it won't be the last Agent Carter we ever get. Um, What's your favorite part? Do as Peggy says. It is not a heavy moment, you know, Mm -hmm. not really. It's not an important moment per se, like in the way Mm -hmm. a lot of important moments are on this show. But let's look at the two men who are yelling that. Right. To Mm -hmm. whom they are yelling it and the circumstances under which they're yelling it. That, friends, is the thesis of the entire show. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Here here is your moral of the story that is Peggy Carter. Hey, dudes. Yeah. Fellow fellow (laughs) men folk. Some women know more than you do. Probably a lot of them. Maybe most of them. Shut the fuck up and listen. And then do what they tell you. That is the moral of this story. It is. It is. And I mean, the thing is that, like, um, I appreciate that, you know, message that men can listen to women and it is okay. The idea that, like, you know, all women know more, you know, or whatever, like, that's that's uh, people are people. Some people do not know more. 
but Peggy does. And when you're when you're up with a Peggy, just just listen, and that's great. Um, for me, I have to say my favorite part is uh, the fight with Jarvis in the desert. Yes. Like that that connection, that that culmination of this incredible love story between Peggy's and Jarvie. Yeah. The culmination of this incredible love story between Peggy and Jarvis for me is is what I one of the things that I come to this show for. I come to it for a lot of things. There's a lot of delight in this show, but that for me, that love story is at the core of all of it. I agree 100%. It's so good and it's obviously the thread that runs through both seasons and I think mm-hmm. that you have accidentally hit upon the worst reason to connect them romantically, which is what are we going to call yeah. them? Pegasus, right. Jarvie, it's terrible. <laughs> it is, it is, it's really terrible. We can't do that. All right, if you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join and come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh and the hashtag is listen up a-holes. This episode of Listen Up A-Holes was brought to you by the Chipperish and Pulp Diction producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Listen Up A-Holes is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our September producers, Kevin, West, Shelley, Abigail, Kristen, Noel, Deborah, Jonathan, Alyssa, Alice, Erica, Sarah, and Heather. And this week's special message for our power producers, our job is keeping people safe. If that means using Vernon to take down a lady who kills people with black space goop, then that's what's gonna happen. All right. And we have just opened up a new closed private Facebook group for Chipperish Media supporters at the $5 or greater level. So if you're a supporter and want to get in on the discussion there, email Lonnie at Chipperish.com and let me know. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, our Patreon links are in the show notes. There are other ways to show your support. However, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or make a deal with the devil. I mean, if you really love the girl. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Luke Cage Season 1, Episodes 1 and 2, and also me throwing Lonnie into the deep end of hip-hop music. I can't wait. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So until then, do as Peggy says, and don't fuck with Nana. A Little Song and Dance aired on February 23rd, 2016 and was written by Chris Dingus. For real? That can't be right. (laughs) I think that's right. God above. I'm doing it over. Jeez. Okay. I actually get in trouble for that word here at my house. Um, It could be dingus. Let's go with dingus. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.